Now, I wonder if we could turn in our Bibles to the book of Nahum and to the first chapter, Prophecy of Nahum, and to chapter 1. We'll read the first chapter again. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, and we thought about the uh, revelation of God that there is in the early verses of the chapter, but we're coming to the latter part tonight, but we'll read the whole of the chapter to get the context. Nahum chapter 1, I'm beginning our reading at verse 1 of the chapter. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth and is furious, the Lord will take vengeance on his, vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end but with an overrunning flood, he will make another They shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counsellor. Thus saith the Lord, Though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now will I break his yoke from off thee and will burst thy bonds in sunder. The Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image, I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Let's just unite in a word of prayer. Our loving and our gracious God, we turn to thee in our Saviour's name afresh tonight, and we do thank thee for these verses. They're terrible verses, Lord. They are verses full of the wrath of God. Yet, Lord, we recognize that uh, this is the revelation that thou hast given to us. Lord, this is something that's ignored today, something that is passed over, and something that maybe is uh, treated with 
a, a little bit of, uh, of uh, embarrassment maybe in some uh, quarters. But Lord, we do thank thee that thy word is truth. And Lord, we want to hear all that God has to say to our souls. And particularly to those maybe listening on tonight who are outside of the family and fold of God. Oh God, they need to hear thy precious word. And we pray that thou wouldst even bless the going forth of thy word tonight and speak with the voice that wakes the dead. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen. Amen. Now we started to look at the uh, prophecy of Nahum here, the Elkoshite. We don't know where Elkosh was. We do know that the name Capernaum means the town of Nahum, and maybe there is some association, uh, there's certainly an association with the prophet, maybe uh, the town had uh, its name changed to Capernaum. But we have a revelation of God here in the opening verses of the prophecy. And you'll notice that the first thing that is said about God in verse 2 is that God is jealous. God is jealous for his honor and for his glory. And God is also jealous of the welfare of his people. And that is why this uh, prophecy here is given to Nineveh, because these had been the enemy of God. These had been the persecutors of God's people. And so, a hundred years after Jonah had gone, and proclaimed the word of God, and there had been repentance and a turning to God, the people had turned again to their old ways and their violence, and God said, now I'm going to sweep in. And you'll see in verse 8, it says, with an overrunning flood, he will make another end of the place thereof. Nineveh was no ordinary city. It was the greatest city in the world at that time, located on the Tigris, River, the site that is very uh, much like the site of uh, Mosul in Iraq at the pleasant time. These were the great days of Nineveh. Sennacherib had more than doubled the size of the city. Uh, the inner city was surrounded by a great wall that was eight miles in circumference. It was 100 feet wide and so wide, at least in places that three chariots could ride abreast around the walls of the city. It had 1,200 towers and 14 gates. And beyond the inner wall, there was a much bigger outer wall. And then beyond the outer wall, there were the suburbs of the city. And you'll remember that Jonah in his day described the city of Nineveh as a great city of three days' journey. It took three days for him to get across the city of Nineveh. Sennacherib's palace was called the palace with no rival. It was uh, made of cedar and cypress and alabaster. There were lions of bronze and bulls of white marble that guarded the city. Its great hall measured 40 by 150 feet. It's uh, Sennacherib's armory uh, where he kept his chariots and his armor and his horses and his weapons and other equipment covered 46 uh, uh, acres and took six years to build. What a magnificent city it was. But what a wicked city it was. And we think of the cruelty with which the Ninevites or the Assyrians gained their power. 
Walter A. Meyer describes the Nineveh of that day, and he said, and I quote, To Nineveh came the distant chieftains who kissed the royal feet. Rebel leaders paraded in fetters. Distant and deceitful kings tied with, lo- with dog chains and made to live in kennels. To Nineveh were sent gifts of far-off tribute, heads of vanquished enemies, crowned princes as hostages, beautiful princesses as concubines. In Nineveh, rulers who experienced rare mercy carried brick and mortar for building operations. Their recalcitrant captives were fled, obstinate opponents crushed to death by their own sons. The Nineveh against which the prophet thunders, divine denunciation, had become the concentrated centre of evil, the capital of crushing tyranny, the epitome of cruelest torture. Before the beginning of the 7th century and Sennacherib's reign, other cities had been royal residence, Kala, Asher, Dur, Sarakam, but Sennacherib made Nineveh his capital, the world metropolis, the source of unmeasured woe for Judah and for other far greater nations, unquote. And under Sennacherib, Nineveh had grown, it had strength, it had splendor, and all of these things. But it was a, a city that was in rebellion against God. And it had stood for many years until God stepped in. And God said, with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof. God was going to sweep it away like a river in spate. And we think of how God did that. There are many who have debated whether God literally meant that or whether it was something that was just a picture. And I think it's both because at the time when the Babylonians came and overran the city of Nineveh, the river that was around it was in spate and it undermined the defenses of the walls. And then the uh, other flood of soldiers from the Babylonians swept in and with an overrunning flood, the prophecy that God had given by the prophet Nahum was fulfilled. But what I want you to think of here and what I want you to realize is that the Ninevites had thought that they were secure. They thought that because they were surrounded by water and the river was on either side, and because they had these great walls, these walls, three chariots thick, 120 uh, watchtowers along the walls, that there was no way that anyone could come in. There was no way that they could be captured. And though they had uh, heard the rumblings of the Babylonians, and they had heard the rumblings of rebellion against them. They never really paid any attention because they thought, well, there's nobody can capture the great city of Nineveh. And then God swept in. And you know there are many people in this day and generation who are secure in their sin. Maybe you're secure because you have taken the uh, teachings of this day You have the scientific or so-called scientific teachings that stand against the Word of God. And you've taken the thought and the uh, uh, accepted notion in the world that science and Christianity are incompatible. They're not. But that's the notion that people have today. 
You think that the Bible has been disproved and all that we are dependent upon as we preach the word of God here is superstitious nonsense. Maybe you have become an atheist and you're standing on that uh, platform and you think that you're secure. You think that you have nothing to worry about. But I want to tell you, dear friend, that though you may feel secure and though it may be that you think that nothing can get to you, dear friend, the God who sweeps away with an overrunning flood is able to reach your heart and will reach you in a day to come unless you repent, unless you turn to God. So we want to think tonight about the overrunning destruction that God promised here to the Ninevites. And I want us to be a warning to each one tonight that we don't take the God, the mighty God of heaven, for granted. So let's look at the destruction that is described here at the end of uh, chapter 1 from verse 8 to verse 15. And first of all, I want you to see how calamitous is the destruction. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make another end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. And then go down the chapter and you look at verse 10. He says, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. And then in verse 12 we're told, yet thus shall they be cut down. Then I cut off the graven image and the molten image. And then in verse 14 he said, I will make thy grave for thou art vile. And the Lord's multiplying terms here, he is emphasizing the drastic, the uh, heavy nature of the destruction, the judgment that is coming upon them. This is not going to be a slap on the wrist. This is not going to be a light thing. We're reminded of what is told us of God in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. And you can see the emphasis, and it's here too in the portion of Scripture. It says in verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. But he says that he will by no means clear the guilty. There is no way. There is And you might be thinking that you'll get away with your sin. You may believe what is told us today where a hear of people and when they th think about their uh, relatives that have passed away, oh, they're looking down upon us from above. Well, dear friend, that's the thought of this day, that everybody's going to heaven, that there's going to be universal salvation. And that's something that people have put their trust in. And that's something that people are leaning upon. And that's something that people have found security in. But that's not the picture that we get in the word of God. God has raised up men for the chastisement of his people at times. And you can see it here, how that the uh, Assyrians had been raised up for the chastisement of God's people. And God, for a little time, had let them to get away with their sin and their violence and all the rest of it. God was using them for a purpose. But then there came the time when God said, 
no more. With an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end. And I want you to see this uh, destruction that God describes here. You'll notice that it is severe. He speaks about an overrunning flood. In the recent days, in the war in Iraq, you, uh, we don't know who blew the dam. Most people think it was the Russians that blew that great dam on the, the river there in uh, Ukraine. And you think of the destruction that followed. Everything was swept away. And you think of the tons of material that there was in the dam. And when the breach had been made, you could see the water uh, coming against the great structure of the dam that had held back the tons of water for many years and just swept it away, carried it down the river for miles. You think of England a few years ago when there was the great rains, and you think about the bridges that had stood there, some of them for hundreds of years, and yet when the force of the water came, they're just swept away, just uh, like something that was floating upon the water, just like a leaf. They were carried away. And when those floods were taking place, you think about how many people, uh, they got their sandbags and they began to barricade. And of course, where the flood was the latest, uh, right out at the very end, the sandbags would have made some difference. But right in the middle of the flood, they were as useless as could be. You weren't going to stop the middle of a flood the overrunning flood. You weren't going to stop that flood with a few sandbags. And it's the same here. That's the picture that God has given. It's not just a flood. It's an overrunning flood. It's not, it's not just a, a flood that comes up to the edge of uh, uh, a previously floodplain, but it is an overrunning flood that just carries everything away. And here is a God who is not going to hold back. He is not going to bring any kind of uh, amelioration for these people. This is the wrath of God against ungodliness. And I know that that's not a popular uh, subject, but this is the wrath of God. And you think of the murders and the rapes and the child abuse, and people complain today, why does God not do anything? Here's God doing something. These were people who murdered and raped and fled people, put people alive on crosses, and were known for impaling people alive. And God steps in because God is a God of justice. And here's a day when accounts are going to be settled. And there is a day when the accounts are going to be settled. You think of that day when you stand before God and if you're still in your sin, God will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The judgment was severe, but also it is settled. It is uh, unstoppable. It is severe and unstoppable, but it is also settled in that it is inescapable. You're not going to dodge this. I think that Many people secretly hope that they will dodge the judgment of God. The Bible says, how shall ye escape if ye shall neglect so great salvation? Oh, dear friend, this is inescapable. This judgment is an overflowing flood 
There's no way that you can step out of the way of the flood of the wrath of God. Not only is it severe and settled, but it is sovereign. It's infallible. In verse 14, God says, I cut off the graven image and the golden image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. And it's God who's going to do these things. The reason why the judgment is unstoppable and inescapable is that God Almighty is the judge. He's the one who is going to do these things. And this is the God who is revealed as the God who is slow to anger. But when God's anger comes, dear friend, who will stand? That's the question that was asked by the prophet long ago. Uh, When God's wrath comes, who will stand? You're not going to be able to stand. You're not going to be able to uh, raise your fist in the face of Almighty God. You'll cower in the dust. You'll try to hide yourself from the wrath of him with whom you have to do. Notice also that it is sudden, at least uh, so far as the prouds, as Nacarab and his hosts were concerned. We're told in Isaiah 37 and verse 36, Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. It came suddenly when they weren't expecting it. You know, the Bible says in Job 20 and verse 5 that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment. Oh, dear friend, God can break in suddenly. It says, how, uh, Job 21, verse 17, How oft is the candle of the wicked put out, and how oft cometh their destruction upon them. God distributes his sorrows in his anger. It's just like the putting out of a candle. Just like that, God steps in, snuffs out the life. And it's solemn. How solemn this is. Look at verse 8. It speaks of darkness, unrelenting darkness. And how that is a picture that comes through from the judgment of God throughout the word of God. In Matthew 25 and verse 30, the Lord says, And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Second Peter 2 and 17, God speaks of the false teachers these are whales without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. Darkness is the absence of light. God is the light. And dear friend, if you pursue the course that you're on, it's going to end up in the outer darkness. So we see how calamitous is this destruction. But then I want you to see how comprehensive is this destruction. There's something total about this. There's something final about this destruction. He says, with an overrunning flood, he will make another end of the place thereof. The other end there um, was literally fulfilled because uh, the city of Nineveh, when it was destroyed, was not discovered again until uh, about the 1840s. Many ancient cities were captured or destroyed and new cities were built on top of the ruins and rose up again. But Nineveh was never rebuilt. Look again at the words of verse 14. I will make thy grave, 
for thou art vile. Nineveh was not merely humbled for a time. She was buried. Buried. That word vile actually means light in the sense of morally insubstantial. It was a word used of uh, Babylon in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 27. You remember the word tekel that was written on the wall and Belshazzar was uh, in the palace. Remember the uh, finger of a man's hand was the finger of God. Many, many tekel, you farsen, the word tekel there, it means wanting, weighed in the balances and found wanting. Oh, dear friend, God weighs you in the balances of his justice. And dear friend, if you're light, if you're light, without God, you're light. You will not tip the balances because the only way is that God is in your life. Look at verse 15. The wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. And in the evasion, the Sennacherib here, there's a... Uh, an allusion to Sennacherib here in the portion of Scripture. And God says, they will not rise up the second time. God's not going to give that second chance. There's no second chance beyond the grave. No second chance. Many people think, well, God will give me a second chance. But I want you to see this judgment. There's no appeal. Many judgments are handed down and because the judges of this day may make mistakes or they may not consider uh, part of the law that they should have considered, there is always the opportunity of appeal. But God is an infallible judge because, so there is no appeal. There is no appeal from the mighty court of heaven. And what is your defense? What would be your defense? When God opens the books and the evidence is pre- presented and it is infallible, Oh, dear friend, the Lord says to you now, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But if you reject that, there's no appeal. Not only is there no appeal, but there's no mitigation. You know, the judges of today, they may find the person guilty, but because they have confessed, or because they've cooperated with the court, or because uh, they have had a good record up until now, They will give a lighter sentence and there will be mitigating factors. But there are no mitigating factors here. Now, Nineveh, of course, had been particularly violent and had been particularly sinful. But there's no opportunity here for the sentence to be reduced. God's sentence will not be reduced. God's sentence will not be uh, given probation from. There is no sense in which there is a reduced sentence with God. There's no appeal, no mitigation, and no parole. You know that at the end of a sentence, the prisoner can appeal for parole, and they can get out on license out of the prison, but there's no parole with God. It's everlasting, everlasting. And Nineveh here goes out of history, never discovered again until the archaeologists began to dig it up about the 1840s. All that there was was ruins. All that there was was dust. That's all that there was. Completely destroyed. And here's one of the prophecies of God's word that has been fulfilled and fulfilled completely. And there are many prophecies that have future elements to them, but this is 
one that was already fulfilled. And you can see the way that God, who has fulfilled his word in the past, is going to fulfill his word today. But there's something else. We see how calamitous is the destruction and how comprehensive is the destruction. But I want you to see how comforting is the destruction. You see, the destruction of Nineveh brought this comfort to the people of God because they were the enemies of God. Look at what the Lord says in verses 12 and 13. Thus saith the Lord, Though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now will I break a yoke from off thee and will burst thy bonds, bonds asunder. Historians give varied reasons for the fall of Nineveh and the rise of Babylon, external uh, factors and factors such as is happening in our own society of uh, uh, beginning to uh, look to pleasure and filling the life with pleasure and turn away from work and beginning to focus on these. That, that's been the pattern in every civilization or if we call it civilization today is at the end point when you see what is happening in our society today. But I want you to see that God doesn't promise his people that they'll not go through affliction. But what I want you to see is that God does promise his people that those that afflict them will suffer for what they have done. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 it says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. And I want you to see that God just steps in here. For a little time, these Ninevites and these Assyrians had been allowed to be the chastising instrument in the hand of God. But there comes a time when God says, stop. God says, stop. And when that happened, I want you to see that there is a comfort. There is a blessing to the people of God. And you know, we read in the book of Revelation at the final destruction of the ungodly in the city of Babylon. When Babylon is destroyed, God says to his people in Revelation 18 and verse 20, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. There is joy and we maybe wonder about that, how there can be joy in the hearts of God's people over the destruction of others. But it is the enemies of God. That's the point. It is those we will see sin as it really is. We don't see sin as it really is today. We have sympathy with others that turn their backs upon God because we once did it too. We once turned our backs upon God. But when you begin to see sin as it really is, then you rejoice when sin is dealt with. You are glad when sin is put an end to. It says in Revelation 19 verses 3 to 5, And again they said, Alleluia! And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. 
and a voice out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. There is joy at the destruction of God's enemies. And we think of what it says. It says in verse 11 there, There's one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. There are many who say that's Sennacherib. You remember that Sennacherib came against the city of Jerusalem and began to mock at the God of heaven, the God of Jerusalem, and said, oh, there are many cities, and they've said that their gods would resist the gods of the uh, Assyrians. And Rabshakeh then came, and he was a, a man who was mocking at the things of God. But then God stepped in with the angel of the Lord, and God stepped in to turn the mighty flood. And dear friend, I want to warn you tonight that there is a day when God will bring you to an account. But one more thing I want you to see, there's the comfort of the destruction. But I want you to see the communication of the destruction. Look at the last verse of the portion of Scripture. It says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. And in the first half of uh, the verse 15, Nahum seems to quote from a text from Isaiah. And it is found in Isaiah 52, verse 7. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, and publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. So the good news there, he is speaking about those that publish good tidings. Good tidings is the gospel. And he's publishing the good tidings in the book of Isaiah. It is the good tidings of the Messiah. It is the good tidings of Christ. It is the good tidings who would come the good, bring the good news of the gospel. And then that is quoted in Romans chapter 10 and verse 18. Or verse 15, and Paul says, And how shall they preach except they be sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring good tidings of good things. And again, the good tidings is the good tidings of the gospel. Now, in this portion of Scripture, the good tidings is the good tidings of the destruction of God's enemies. But I want you to see that we can put all those things together. There is the good tidings of justice and righteousness. There's the good tidings that God will be vindicated. That is, people, there will be a destruction of those that rebel against them. That's part of the good tidings. The good tidings that there will be justice at the end of the day. And then there's the good tidings of the message of Christ. It says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 15 about those that preach the good tidings of the gospel of peace. And that's good tidings. We have good tidings in this world today that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that you don't need to face the wrath of God, that you don't need to suffer the overrunning flood of the, uh, the, the uh, power of God. You don't need to face that. For Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
to bring men and women to himself, to bring them from the very pit of hell and bring them into that relationship with himself. From the horrible pit and from the miry clay, there is the uplifting of the Savior. That's good news. That's good tidings. And then, of course, there is the good tidings of salvation, everlasting life. The one who bare his, our sins in his own body on the tree. And he says, blessed are those that bring those good tidings. And God has given us preachers and God has given his word to you today. The good tidings of the gospel in order that you might not come into that place of wrath. That you might escape from that overrunning flood of the anger of a mighty God. To look into the face whose eyes flame with fire. Dear friend, on that day, you will not stand. But God has given you a place to stand right now. No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ. If you stand there, you have a firm foundation, even in the overflowing flood, and the running flood. The overrunning flood will not come nigh you. But even if it did, if we hypothetically said that, you'll not be swept away because you have a firm foundation. Oh, dear friend, come to the Savior. We have spoken tonight about the overrunning flood of the wrath of God. But you don't need to suffer that wrath because Christ has made a way at the cross by which you can be saved. Will you trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? And will you call upon him for mercy tonight? Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and our loving Father in heaven, we do thank thee that in the face of the overrunning flood of the, of the uh, wrath of God, that there is a place of relief. We thank thee for the good tidings. Lord, we have heard a lot of bad tidings tonight. But Lord, we thank Thee at the end of the chapter, it speaks about good tidings. And we are glad that there's good tidings for men and women tonight, that they can find refuge in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Write Thy word upon hearts and bless Thy word to our souls. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen. Can we turn to the last hymn there on the board? The hymn 157. The hymn 157, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders. Hark the trumpet's awful sound, louder than a thousand thunder shakes the vast creation round. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. And we will uh, sing verses 1, 2, and 5 verses 1, 2, and 5, and we'll stand as we sing.
Father in heaven, we do thank thee for thy precious word to our hearts afresh tonight. And O God, write that word upon every heart. Part us in thy fear and with thy blessing now. Take us to homes in safety. Watch over us and be with us. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with us both now and in the incoming days. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen.